This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Editorial purges. Cancel culture. Your favourite footballers and cricketers taking the knee? Every week? What's the impact on Black Lives Matter here in Britain? This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. And what is anti-racism? Is it the same as being against racism? And if not, what exists in the vacuum between these definitions? Does it allow for anti-Zionism and by extension anti-Semitism? Are Jews being caught in the crossfire? If we all agree that racism is a problem, is change even possible when an establishment of public sector, charities, even sports governing bodies are rushing to be associated with an organisation which also wants to defund the police and crush capitalism, not to mention their plan for Israel? Is a silent majority of Britain miffed to be told they're guilty of white privilege, like factory workers, lollipop ladies and warehouse operatives? For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. What is going on? How should you react to it? Over the next two episodes, I talk to some of the leading critics of these sudden events to define this newly charged identity politics which BLM has triggered. And today's guests, writer, broadcaster, Doyen of Arts, Equality and Data Analytics, Trevor Phillips. The Guardian thinks it owns everything to do with race and everybody involved in race. And I keep reminding them that we got rid of slavery two centuries ago. Conservative woman, Karen Harradine. Despite Trump being in power in the US and the Tories being in power here, our institutions are controlled by the left. And coming up in the next episode, Catherine Burbell Singh. I very much believe that I'm British. And I think that uh, that is the case uh, for all migrants who move around the world. You, you find yourself a home. And then you, I'm very grateful to this country for taking me in. And I think think that it's important for our children here growing up I mean it is their country as much as anyone else's country and the the habit that the media has and that schools have of looking at ethnic minority children and telling them that they're not British and they do so you know they don't go up to them and say you're not British what they do is they say things like oh we must celebrate where you're really from let's all bring in our our home flag and so the children bring in their Jamaican flags and their Nigerian flags and so on. And uh, I think if we want a successful society and a successful country, uh, we need to make sure that all of us feel like we are British. And director of the Free Speech Union, Inaya Fularin Iman. I mean, in the last few weeks, Elon Musk has launched a rocket yeah. into space. I mean, and so... A private sector rocket. Exactly. It's an incredible achievement. That is something. <laughs> exactly. And so when I see so many of these conversations about, you know, race and gender, you know, I, I feel like it's so limiting of who we are. You know, we've got so much yeah. history, we've got so much future, and there's so many things that we can do on this small time we have on this planet. And so that's what I think about when I'm engaged in politics. How do we push the boundaries? How do we go beyond and, and, and not um, get stuck in essentially this cul-de-sac of thinking where we're theorising constantly about our race or our gender? I think that's incredibly myopic and I think it limits um, our potential. If there was a World Cup of Ideas, I'd have a formidable squad. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. I've had the privilege to talk to four leading voices on society, education, politics and culture, and being British. 
Their takes cover a lot of ground, so I've split our conversations into two episodes. Today, Trevor Phillips and Karen Harradine, and in the next episode, Catherine Burbal Singh and Inaya Falarin Iman. And thanks a lot for your reaction to the Nick Timothy and Jason Greenblatt episodes, especially on the new ground I'm ploughing with these podcast guests. Also, hi and thank you to Canada, where David Schwartz and Haley Miller wired me donations. If you listen to my series, it takes me a while to make them, so buying me a coffee is a real booster, I can tell you. Go to ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould where you can do that. And if you do buy me a coffee there, thanks. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. When the media talks about national treasures, it's usually actors, singers and Captain Tom, isn't it? But I'd put my first guest firmly in that category as well. Trevor Phillips has been there, done that, and he's Deputy Chairman now of the Board of the National Equality Standard and other business appointments, including Director of Weber Phillips, a data analytics provider, and he's also a board member of the Barbican Arts Centre. He's the former chairman of the EHRC, the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Of course, they're delivering to the Labour Party right now their investigation. And when Trevor was part of the London Assembly, he had, well, a difficult relationship with Ken Livingstone. They clashed over multiculturalism. It's out of date, he says. It legitimises separateness between communities and instead he believes we should assert a core of Britishness. He's currently suspended from the Labour Party over the differences his party had with him, defining that term Islamophobia. Labour's adoption of the word is nonsense, as Muslims are not a race. People become Muslims largely because it is a pan-racial faith. This is not a racial grouping, so describing hostility to them as racial is nonsense. Here now is Trevor Phillips. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. For those who listen. For those who are willing to listen. The sudden attack on our ability to argue freely has actually been creeping up on us for quite a while, hasn't it? It's not new. No, I mean, I don't think... It may have suddenly come to the attention of much of the public and the Westminster crowd... But actually, this has been an issue for probably now two decades. And it comes really from a very simple proposition. And that is this, that we know that there are very many difficulties in our society for some people, for women, people in ethnic minorities, disabled people, and so on. Some people, not me, but some people think that this is really down to a lack of understanding of those groups on the part of men or white people or those who are not disabled. And that if you could somehow just change people's minds and attitudes, then the problems to do with, for example, underachievement at school from some some ethnic minorities or uh, the pay gap for women, all of those things would sort of disappear. And I think that for some folks who think that there's an easy route to the solution and that is uh, summed up by the following uh, proposition that if you can stop people saying things that are wrong then you'll stop them thinking things that are wrong so if you take out uh, some kinds of language that supposedly lead to people of color 
being denigrated and so on, then that will stop people thinking less well of people of colour. If you remove the language of sex difference, then actually the bigotry or the, the uh, discrimination that is aimed at women will also disappear. Now, this is all complete nonsense, but it is, I think, firmly believed amongst a lot of people. And so actually underneath the whole idea of the cancel culture and the platforming and so on and so forth, is not just a sort of cavalier disregard or a sort of simple bullying. It is part of a philosophy that says, if we can stop people saying things, then we'll stop them thinking it and we will get to a better world. And that, of course, is why it's so dangerous, because it isn't born of just some sort of passing fad. This is a very fundamental idea about how society should work, uh, which people are not going to be uh, dispossessed of very easily. And so suddenly, uh, despite what Martin Luther King taught us, we are, as a society, beginning to judge people by the colour of their skin, not the content of their character. And from that comes cancel culture. Well, I think that um, we, we need to distinguish between what you know, the, your average person thinks, which is, I don't think, like that, really. I think most people in this country take uh, the individuals they meet as they are. That, that's, a, that, that's a separate thing from what you might call the decision makers, who have a whole different set of imperatives. So they will be perhaps a bit obsessed by the proportions of male or female or white or black or whatever it is that they have on their roster. Um, I don't think it's a, it's a terrible thing for them to pay attention to that. But I think once you start to kind of be tyrannized by those kinds of categories and find yourself being constantly afraid of what people might say about you or about your organization, then um, you start to lose sight of what really matters. Authorities in universities, in some of our public services, are, potent, are beginning to lose sight of what the point of diversity and equality is. It is not to have a sort of perfect arithmetical representation of the nation at every table and on you know, every minute of every media outlet. It is to make sure that people are not excluded from opportunities for the wrong reasons or for bad reasons. That's why we keep an eye on these numbers and get, are concerned about diversity. It's not in order to sort of show off our, you know, our perfect scores. It is to make sure that we promote the best people for any particular role in our organisations, that we don't exclude people who have something to offer in our voluntary or uh, civic life. And it's OK when you can define it, isn't it? So when it's apparent, but... What happens when someone is overlooked over and over again for a job or opportunities and it's never explained quite why when they believe they have the skill set, the only inkling one has about it, why you've been overlooked is perhaps by looking at the people who were appointed instead of you. Are you playing catch up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck 
many of the trends. There isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's, uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Yes, I mean, that is, is true in the modern world, in the same way as we expect, you know, people from uh, organizations from which from whom we buy goods or we get services to be clear about what they're giving us and what we're paying for. I, I don't see any reason at all why organizations shouldn't be expected also to be clear about, for example, why they make certain appointments and they don't make others. I, I think we need to be a, a bit careful to assume that because somebody didn't get a job, that means that they've been discriminated against. I mean, many jobs for which I myself have been rejected, and frankly, three minutes consideration would show anybody else, and eventually me, that there's a good reason why I've been rejected. But um, but I think that the in these matters, transparency is what matters most of all. You can't expect people to believe you if you're not open with them about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Trevor, can we talk about Black Lives Matter now as a Premier League and England cricket campaign is something that I've spoken out against, saying very simply that political movements, which include defunding the police, deconstructing capitalism and the abolishment of Israel for a so-called free Palestine, should be kept firmly away from what has been the English game. And when I say that with a capital T, E and G, syndicated around the world so fast because of its meritocratic values of teamwork and individuality over six or seven generations. The English game has never been politicised here. When you think of the city of Liverpool and the city of Glasgow, you know, similar in terms of makeup, but there's nothing sectarian about Liverpool. There's everything sectarian about Glasgow, but but not here. So the the idea uh, that I'm asking you here is, is uh, you know, did Richard Masters, the chief executive of the Premier League, completely misunderstand what BLM was? And is it a danger of actually creating conflict where there was complete peace? Uh, well, uh, I don't think it was his choice, to be honest. I mean, you do have to remember that 40% of the players in the league are people of colour. 
I, I am uncomfortable with the sense that if you don't go with a sort of widely held ritual or gesture, that um, that means that you are, for example, against the mainstream aim ideas of Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and that's what then pe people sort of suspected that in some bizarre way you were in favour of um, white policemen killing black people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's all absurd. Um, and ditto that there is, you know, if you don't go along with a particular view of uh, Israel, that automatically means that you're basically in favour of the uh, of of action of occupations or of actions against Palestinians or or whatever the cause might be. I do worry about that. I do worry about that. But I think that the answer to this, to be frank, is that we all have to be, if we are, if we have the means and the courage to do it, uh, to stand up for freedom of expression, including the freedom of expression of those who we do not like and whose views we do not share. Um, a, a, a young woman said something on Twitter quite recently, which I thought was very smart, that we have to make the distinction between hate speech and speech that we hate. And, you know, in, in legal terms, we would make the distinction between incitement, i.e., in my case, somebody stands on the other side of the road and says, there's a nigger, let's go get him. And speech I hate, which is that somebody uses the N-word about me, but doesn't call on his friends to come and kick my head in. I mean, these two things are quite different. And I, I, think, I think we do need to sometimes take a step back, be a bit calmer and distinguish, as I say, between actual hate speech, which is illegal, which is wrong, which has to be circumscribed, and speech that we hate, which we have to live with. What with, you know, if everybody's taking a knee because that's the law, that the original idea pioneered by Colin Kaepernick, the um, American uh, footballer, was a voluntary gesture which cost him a lot of money to demonstrate his particular political views. Now, whether you agree with his views or not, he is free to express them. And he was free to, uh, and he did that with the full knowledge that he would pay a price for it, and he did. As a matter of principle, he should have the right to do that. Awkward people are often the most admirable. I think the problem with the English taking the knee thing is that it seems now to me to become something which, in a way, people are being arm-twisted into doing. And I, I don't know if it is particularly divisive, but I do think there's a danger that the underlying idea is being devalued. Now, that's entirely apart from the behaviour of some of the organisations associated with Black Lives Matter who've chosen to introduce all sorts of peculiar things that really have nothing to do with problems faced by people of colour. If they were going to do this, they should have done it for one Saturday and then got on with the game. I think the continuing repetition of it is now beginning to feel a little bit tokenistic. Mm. 
Indeed. Is change even possible when the establishment of public sector charities and those sports governing bodies are actually rushing to be associated with it? I mean, you know, there is a, a racial issue. There is one. It is an American issue which has been imported here. We don't have the same race relations history in the same way. Nevertheless, you know, we would agree that, you know, there are issues of racism, but the fact that it's become an establishment ritual before kickoff for week after week after week is actually stopping the actual purpose of its uh, of its protest in the first place. <laughs> Maybe I'm, you know, I might be sound a little bit like my teenage Maoist self when I say this. If something is so readily embraced by the corporate world, is it truly radical? Discuss. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. That's very pithy. That would have actually been a better question to ask. In fact, that would have been the uh, the question, and then it would have been uh, rhetorical. Your answer. In fact. <laughs> now, uh, you are the former chairman of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Uh, they are about to reveal the report to the wider world, and obviously, from there, make their decisions about what they should do with certain members of the former administration led by Jeremy Corbyn and indeed the reforms that Keir Starmer has promised to carry out. But my question to you on this basis is, if it doesn't uncover the so-called Green-Red Alliance under Jeremy Corbyn, then actually it won't have really properly done its job. Well, um, you forgive me if I don't get drawn on this. One of the things I promised my colleagues at the HRC when I stepped down from the chair eight years ago is that I would absolutely not spend any time stepping across their mat. Uh, the HRC has to publish its report. I am hopeful that they will do a good job and that they will deal with this issue forensically. All I can say is I, I don't know about the red-green alliances, but all I can say is that some of the examples that we already know about of what has happened in the Labour Party and the way that the parties dealt with them are certainly worthy of censure. I mean, I think the central point here is uh, it, uh, the, the thing I, w I, I hope comes through is this, that no political party can actually, uh, if you like, censor all of its members. I mean, all sorts of people join political parties for all sorts of reasons. And it is, uh, it, it's inconceivable that you won't have people who are malevolent uh, erratic, ex eccentric, and ha have all sorts of peculiar motives. To me, that is not the real test of the party. The real test of the party is what does it do when it is confronted with the malevolent, or in this case, the anti-Semitic member. And I think the problem for Labour is that for many years, it just did nothing. And indeed, to some extent, it rather embraced some of these trends. Now, what I hope that the, um, the Commission's report will demonstrate is where the party went wrong and what it now needs to do never to be in that position again. But we shall have to wait and see exactly what it is they come out with. Anti-racism, there's an interesting term. For me, it's problematic. There's a vacuum between what anti-racism and being against racism is. It allows anti-racists in that vacuum between those two definitions, to actually be anti-Zionist? Uh, well, I think for some people...
people that's quite possibly true. Though I, I would say that the mainstream problem is is actually a much, sim much simpler one than that. Um, I think people like Jeremy have a particular, a specific view of the world, which, by the way, I don't think, um, to be honest, is, is specifically Marxist. The, the root of it is more than anything else anti-American, and that these two things are not necessarily the same thing. It is pro probably true that most Marxists are to some extent anti-American, but not all anti-Americans are Marxists. But and I think what what is at the heart of some most of what we're talking about is a very very simple proposition, which is that America runs the world. Almost everything that happens in the world can be motivated or prevented by the United States, and that means almost all bad things that happen are uh, in the interests of the United States and either created by the United States or happen because the United States fails to prevent them. And of course, the United States has, um, I think they would, these people would say, uh, a sort of tame running dog in the Middle East, in Israel, and that actually the, the uh, Israel is simply an emanation of American imperialism. I think that uh, people like Jeremy Corbyn would not demur from anything that I've just said. So from their point of view, anti-Zionism and the way it shades into anti-Semitism is it's a straightforward logical progress from their basic view about the world. And, and you know, if you talk to them, they will say, we've got nothing against Jews. It's just the Jews' fault that they, that they happen to support this ghastly uh, execrance called Israel and its American uh, paymasters. Uh, that's how they think. They would say to you, and this is one of the reasons that it is so pernicious, they would say to you that actually they, this has nothing to do with being Jewish. This has all to do with imperialism. And that the only reason you don't understand that is because, you know, you're in the pay of American capitalism or some, some such nonsense. Um, I don't think we need... It's in, it, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in my life with uh, these groups of people. And I think we need to be careful not to ascribe them too much cleverness or sophistication. Um, I don't think it's that sophisticated, <laughs> frankly. Thank you, Trevor. Now, as events unfolded in making this episode, Jewish journalist and author Barry Weiss resigned from the New York Times, citing constant bullying from colleagues and saying that Twitter had become the paper's ultimate editor. Co-workers had called me a Nazi and a racist. I've learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again. Karen Haradine is a prolific writer, and The Conservative Woman is not just one of the publications she writes for, but a very good starting point as way of introduction. What we have to realise that despite Trump being in power in the US and the Tories being in power here, our institutions are controlled by the left. Given how things are going with the civil service, they try to stop Brexit. We look at the House of Lords, and we look at our mainstream media, the BBC, the Sky, one of the things that is happening is that journalists are no longer journalists in the mainstream media, but activists. And this is a big issue that they these are people that believe in distorting the news and putting it across, not as the facts, but as an opinion piece, which is very worrying. People then 
only get a small snapshot of what the real truth is. Instead of reporting the facts, you're getting a distorted view of what's going on and it becomes a vicious circle. So you, a person will hear stuff in the mainstream media. It's enforced by institutions like the our judiciary, the police. The same thing, you know, similar thing in the U.S. That it's a it's a drip drip of continual messages on various subjects, and there is an intersection that I have found. This whole woke agenda and mentality, which includes anti-Semitism, so the two really go hand in hand, and because. We're not, I would say control is the wrong word, but I would say dominated by woke ideology. It's a big problem, especially for us Jews. In Barry's resignation letter, which was excoriating, yes. if the New York Times are serious about their future, yeah. there should be a moment of introspection. Uh, she says the lessons that ought to have followed the Trump-Clinton election, lessons about the importance of understanding other Americans, yes. the necessity of resisting tribalism, and the centrality of the free exchange of ideas to a democratic mm. society have not been learned. I mean, this is New York. Yes, exactly. I, I think what happened, both with Trump and Brexit, that... Our cultural elite, which is the best way to describe uh, these bunch of people that we were talking about, is they forget about the what I call the dispossessed, the forgotten, the neglected. You, you know, in, in, in America, it's what we call the flyover states. In the UK, it's a whole swath of the working class that have been decimated by EU policies. And so you have your cultural elite living in their bubble, which includes a huge amount of anti-Semitism, and they, they, they're in an echo chamber. They, they won't counter any other ideas or philosophies or concepts or, or even have knowledge of how other people are living their lives, such as the working classes here or the flyover states in America. So they, they keep reinforcing the same woke ideology to each other. So they don't see anything wrong with what they believe. And the one bit of racism that is accepted both here and in America, is anti-Semitism. I doubt very much that there will be any introspection at the New York Times after Barry's letter. Can we talk about another manifestation, Black Lives Matter? And those who take a knee or wear a BLM emblem mm -hmm. are giving their organization free publicity, Absolutely. even if they claim not to agree with everything organization stands for. Support of BLM reveals them to be Useful idiots, said a yes. well-known writer. <laughs> um, together they are promoting and enriching those who wish to tear down the West and replace yes. it with a socialist utopia. Our other distinguished guests and indeed Nick Timothy in the previous podcast discussed the idea that uh, you're nefarious if you argue against it. Trevor yes. Phillips has told me that somehow if you disagree with them, you support white policemen standing on the neck of a, uh, a black man. It's preposterous. I stood up against mm -hmm. BLM being involved in football because mm. I want my football space not to be a bloody campaign organization. Absolutely. I, I think, just want to yeah. I just want to see Villa lose in peace. <laughs> you know. I think it's unbelievable. I think one thing that has happened, and I you know that I would put it down partly to social media is a polarization of thinking and 
nuance has been lost. So, for example, if you don't support Black Lives Matter, even if you know what they stand for, making excuses that, oh, I, I support the idea rather than the organization, it doesn't wash. If you're a footballer or a cricketer taking the knee or wearing a Black Lives Matter emblem, you are supporting them as much as you deny that you don't support their aims. If you wear the emblem of somebody, of an organization, or you do something that acknowledges them, like uh, taking the knee, you are supporting them. And it's very easy to find out. They say it on their own website. There's so much information out there about them that it, it, it's astounding how many people ignore the truth. And I think as well, race, I said several years ago that racism or accusations of racism is akin to being accused of witchcraft in the medieval era. There's no proof that you can say that you're not a racist. You know, if somebody accuses you of racism, they will find some way to accuse you, find some proof to accuse you of that. And it can lead to imprisonment, losing your livelihood. And as we know, the medieval era, death. I, I, this is our, this is our new scarlet letter, so to speak. This is our new trope against others. You want to silence somebody or kick them out of their job, all you have to do is call them a racist. And what it does, and what Black Lives Matter have done, as I said in my piece, they've trivialized, they've diminished the concept of racism. And a lot of people are doing that. So it becomes difficult to distinguish between what is actually racist and what is hyperbole. That's Karen Harradine. Next time on Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Catherine Burbell sing on the unifying call of Britishness for those of us lucky to live here and Inaya Falarin Iman on how humanity and its possibilities should always be counted above identity. You'll hear views expressed which chime from within Jewish families and it'll be a comfort to many Jewish people that the immigrant experience is shared in other communities. In the meantime, scroll down for more episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Old.